0: What is ADHD? What does that weird thing mean? How to know if I'm gay? Or not really okay? No thoughts left unsaid. We'll talk here instead. So come have a chat with Charlie. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatting with Charlie. This is me, Uh, slightly annoyed because I have just recorded the entire episode and then my internet decided to not work and I just saved it online so it deleted my entire episode but that's okay because I am feeling what we are going to be talking about now for the rest of the episode and I thought, who better to introduce today's topic than famous Captain Ray Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So, what's today's topic? So, today we are going to be talking about pain. But I am not going to be, I don't know, recalling all of my pain here. This is not going to be an online therapy session. But I'm actually going to talk about why I think that pain is given a bit of a bad reputation. Because pain itself is neither inherently good nor bad. So, pain is a pretty shitty feeling. It is a reaction. That is uncomfortable to an either mental or physical stimuli that doesn't feel good, or that is not good for us, that is detrimental for us. So um, it can be uh, instinctive behaviours and reflexes, so if we touch something hot, you, we will pull our hand away pretty quickly, because it's hot. And that sucks. Because... <laughs> obviously, um, you do not want to burn all of your (laughs) hands. (laughs) Um, Not all of your hands, all of your skin. And the same way um, in, in an emotional context. So if someone hurts us really badly, we will feel emotional pain. And through this emotional pain, we will hopefully... Uh, Not engage in this behavior again. So pain can save our lives because it can stop us from doing things that are really bad for us. But unfortunately we're more complicated than that and pain is more complicated than that and I thought I would start with a nice little personal anecdote so that you know I don't know what's going on in my head at the moment. I was sitting on the sofa with pretty bad menstrual cramps and I had a hot water bottle. And I was sitting there with my hot water bottle and my wonderful girlfriend looked at me and she said, oh, I wish I could take away all of your pain. And me, being <laughs> dramatic in who I am, I said, well, what are you going to do with my pain? Um, and then she said, well, I'll throw it out of the window and it will be lonely on its own. And again, me being me, Um, uh, I had to make a discussion out of it, and I said, well, but, poor pain, we don't want it to be on its own. We know from solitary confinement in prison that that is literal torture. We don't want pain to be tortured, we just want pain to learn how to behave. So she sort of looks at me and probably thinks, God, what's going on with that one? What did I get myself into? But smiles at me and says, all right, then what do you think we should do with pain? And then I was in my element and I started monologuing and I said, well, I think pain should go through some therapy and try to figure out why it wants to hurt me, um, why pain wants to cause significant and prolonged amounts of pain. And then I think it should do some public service. And that's sort of where the analogy then stopped with talking about um, pain in a natural physiological, biological, psychological thing, then we started talking about the prison system and why we think there are so many problems with it and what should actually happen with prisoners. And then we were sort of vaguely comparing it to pain, but that is where the, um, at least on a biological scientific level, the uh, comparison or the analogy fell apart. But one thing that we did take away from this conversation was that we agreed that pain itself is not the problem. The problem is when pain overrides all of the other emotions longer than is reasonable. So I'll get into some more concrete examples afterwards about what you mean with as long as it's reasonable. So sometimes pain needs to override all of the other emotions and all of the other feelings and all of the other impulses. Because if I'm doing something that is pleasurable and I'm very happy and um, <laughs> my brain is saying, oh yes, lots of happy hormones, wonderful, and I'm having a really good time, and then suddenly someone comes with the big old hammer and whacks me in the head with it, it is going to hurt like a bitch. And that is a very good thing because I probably should try and get away from this hammer and if, you know, I can sort of register, mm, that wasn't very comfortable, but then my happy hormones are going, oh no, let's carry on with this wonderful activity, doesn't really matter what's happening up there, that's not very helpful. And this again, obviously, it's a bit simple, it's a bit simplistic the way I'm saying it, but it sort of accounts for emotional pain as well. Because if someone who was very close to you dies, you will be sad. And it's okay to be sad, it's very normal, it shows that you had a connection with this person. And I'm going to talk more about mental and psychological pain a little bit later. But um, I'm going to stick with physical pain for a bit now and sort of start talking about, right, when does it get problematic? So there are studies that actually show that in prolonged chronic pain... um, Uh, we have actual changes in structures of part of the brain. So we have structural and functional changes in the corticolimbic brain regions. So um, parts of these are the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, the hippocampus, and several other parts. And um, what these... What these systems basically do is- well they do- they have quite a few functions which makes it fairly complicated now to go into a lot of detail but um, they are- they have a broad range of behavioural and cognitive functions so there's motor programming and motor control so basically moving, (laughs) how we move, um, for decision making, for emotional regulation And sorry. recent studies have found that this system is actually very flexible, and that means it can change, and these changes can happen for a variety of reasons. So they can be environmental factors, uh, in this case meaning stress and fear-inducing stimuli. Uh, but also um, neuropsychiatric illnesses, so for example, post traumatic stress disorder or neurological conditions such as Alzheimer's. And more and more about these uh, cortico limbic brain regions are being found out. Um, as we speak. So it's very very... they have lots more functions and a lot more complexity than what I just said now. But really the takeaway, the crucial message here is they do lots of things and they can be changed. And um, as we find out, so now we have more and more neuroimaging and um, it becomes ethically a bit more (laughs) easier to find out things. But uh, very unluckily for them, and very luckily for us in science, there have been several people who have had extensive damage to various brain regions. And um, if we look at these people, we can often see significant behaviour changes. So... um, We can- the probably most famous person of someone who went through behavioral changes after brain damage is Phineas Gage who worked um, on the railroads and building rail tracks, and then he got a massive iron rod driven through his head. And it destroyed much of his frontal lobe. Um, So... Yeah, (laughs) it destroyed much of his frontal lobe, which uh, led to his behaviour sort of making a complete 360. So even though he could still understand things, um, he went from being sort of very... Easy uh, from very easygoing and friendly and polite to uh, what people might describe now as a bit of an asshole, And there have been several other famous patients who've had brain damage um, and then complete behaviour changes that people couldn't understand. So surges in aggression. Uh, in a podcast, actually, that I was listening to the other day, um, there was someone who had a tumour. Um, I think it was somewhere in his in his cortico-limbic system but don't quote me on that um, but he had a tumor and then he had a sudden surge of aggression and he killed his wife and his um, mother and then he killed himself and he wrote notes in his suicide note he said please don't uh, ever doubt that I truly loved them and, um, please do an autopsy when I die. And that is exactly what was done, and they did find this tumour. And then, again, so, this tumour alone could not describe his behaviour. Um, there was extensive research done, um, and has been done for a long time now, where we, uh, well, (laughs) I say we, I didn't do it. (laughs) Wish I did, but I didn't. Where, uh, basically the outcome is always it's multifaceted and um so many so many parts play a role so there's no one predictor for aggression or whatever but um yeah take home message um changes to the brain um can have a massive effect on everything from cognitive function to decision-making and behavior. So now knowing that chronic pain can change the brain, measurably change the brain, is something that is incredibly important to think about and also helps us understand a little bit more why it can be so difficult to stop going through this pain particularly when we're talking about emotional pain. So again, in um, in um, physical pain, we can have the effect that if you're suffering from uh, whatever, that the the brain regions that are responsible for causing this pain sort of become more, active and more alarmed, hence then making this pain worse, which is why it's difficult when people say something. oh, it's only psychosomatic. That doesn't mean that it's, yeah, the only kind of should just disappear, because the brain has a massive effect on, um, the brain has a massive effect on <laughs> physical illnesses as well, and it can actually, it can make this pain Worse, and we see surprisingly similar effects uh, with with mental pain. Like, not even from a neurological standpoint. Just if you think about, I'm sure you've you are lucky enough to have not experienced it yourself. If you've met someone who's been mentally ill for a very long time, it can be um, it can sometimes seem like they don't want to get better, and then we might meet them with judgment, but also not understand. You tell me you're suffering, why do you then not want to get better?" And this might seem a bit paradox, but we are very habitual creatures and we like, um, we like what we know. And if we go back to what we said before, with that our brain actually changes. So, um, we are actually rewiring our brain when we when we go through therapy, when we take medication, and all of this can be very difficult and can be um, can be incredibly taxing. I'm sure you remember puberty or maybe you're going through puberty now. We have extreme behavioural changes and actually everything feels very dramatic and we have exaggerated responses to everything and we can laugh about it now, but puberty is damn hard and we can have similar effects when we're mentally ill, that we have to rewire our brain, but we don't really have the energy to do so. And um, rewiring your brain sounds very, sounds very nice, it sounds very sort of, but it also sounds very not scientific. Uh, Basically, we are just talking about um, neuronal um, uh, connections, so um, the, the brain signaling. And there are certain ways that impulses can pass through our brain um, depending on uh, <laughs> you know where this input is supposed to go and what it is and um, if it's something that we where we need to absolutely acutely act, and um, there are filtering systems, and it's all incredibly complex and if you want to hear about neuroscience, then there are much better podcasts than me. Um, but we have all of these different systems and the brain is quite sneaky so if we hurt ourselves and don't die from some physical illness if you have a brain injury then some of these um some of these pathways that it should go can be avoided to some extent or the brain can change and different brain regions can can take over some of the functions which is why we see sometimes that behaviours then sort of become a bit more the way they were before or that functions are regained even if parts of the brain have been destroyed due to a tumour or whatever. So we see all of these all of these differences um, Which don't really have that much to do with the topic at hand, but I like talking (laughs) So if we go back to pain Uh, The problem with pain, as we've just seen, is when it takes over, because then it takes over and it messes with everything and then our whole world is literally painted black and it can be very easy then to focus on all the bad things and um, (laughs) people then like to come with motivational quotes, which believe me, that's not what I'm doing here because I hate them as much as the next person. Um, but it can be very, very easy to focus on all of the bad things, because that is literally what your brain is wired to do, and is trying to do, and um, something has malfunctioned. And then, this is what we call, sort of, maladaption. So, actually, uh, we see um, we see dangers everywhere, and we react to stimuli differently than we should. But we are also numbed to other types of pain. Um, apathy, not wanting to do anything, but also not feeling anything, um, is another very common symptom of depression. So we have all of these um, pain stimuli all of the time, and we feel <laughs> shit a lot of the time. So we're not really phased by pain, because it's the status quo, it's what we know, and that can be the same with with physical pain. You can never know, is this just a flare-up, or is it the new normal? And then if new pain comes, we sort of, yeah, you know, we accept that it's there, maybe we are sad and we're angry, but we wouldn't take it as seriously as we would if we didn't have any pain in the first place. So that's when pain becomes a pain. (laughs) Sorry. No, but that's when pain becomes a bit of a bummer. Pain itself is something that I strongly believe we need to feel. We have this notion that we're not allowed to talk about pain. We're not allowed to feel pain. We're not allowed to acknowledge pain. We're not allowed to, um, We're not allowed to talk about this pain, we're just supposed to pretend it doesn't exist, and that everything is wonderful. And the thing is, life isn't just wonderful. Bad things happen, and we feel this pain for a reason. And if you think about our societal expectations for men, men are not supposed to feel pain, men are not allowed to feel pain, men should be strong and manly. But men should also be emotional and they should be vulnerable and they should be soft because otherwise they're toxically masculine and so now they have this dictonomy and they don't know <laughs> we don't know what what is a man supposed to be like is a man supposed to be vulnerable or is a man not supposed to be vulnerable and we have this whole sort of societal problem that we hide these things and that we try and fight them all ourselves and then if we do open up we find that actually lots of people have very similar problems to ourselves but then we have this ridiculous notion that somehow we have to compete. I'm sure you've seen this when someone says oh I'm so tired, ten other people will chime in oh yes I'm, I'm so tired, I only slept two hours and I was, I was studying all night and then someone else will come oh yes and I haven't eaten for five days because I just forgot to eat. And then we have the Olympics of who is in the most pain. And for some reason, we want to win. We want to have the most pain. I'm not quite sure why. But um, I guess there's a big validation aspect as well. Because if we're in the right amount of pain, we'll get some sympathy. If we're in the wrong amount of pain, or if our pain is somehow not deemed <laughs> worthy then uh, we get lots of stigma and that makes it all worse but very specific pain uh breaking your leg and being in the hospital that sort of pain can get you sympathy and can get you can make you feel validated and if other people are talking about their pain well you might just be able to one up them and then you feel as if you've accomplished something which I have no um, scientific reason here, I have no psychological explanation, I'm sure there are ones to some extent, but as I'm no expert and I don't know, I'm not going to hypothesise about anything here. But I am going to say that um, if we start to be able to acknowledge our pain, and I'm not talking about people with a mental illness now, I'm not talking about chronic pain, I'm talking about very normal human emotions, that it can help us regulate all of our emotions if we start with recognising them. It starts that we can't often recognise these emotions because we become so numb to them, because we try to fulfil this expectation of what it means to be a person, and be a successful person, and the parts of ourselves that we're supposed to show. And if we go back to the evolutionary beginnings, where obviously pain is a weakness, um, both physical and mental pain, but if we go back to the origins, if we think of cave humans wanting to mate, and you (laughs) sort of go, ungo bongo, I have a big slash on my leg, I am bleeding out! bongo do you like my my impression of a of a cave cave person? Oh dear, but anyway, Ungo bungo, look at my look at my blading leg. Please mate with me. The mate is gonna say, uh, no, there's there's bongo over there, and he has two strong legs. Strong man, mate, strong man, and um, yes, strong man is gonna get a mate more likely. That was not an English sentence, but it doesn't matter. Neither was any of the, the ungo Bongo conversation. Um... I'm not quite sure why why those are the noises that my my um, Stone Age people make. Um, this is completely irrelevant, but I was sort of thinking of, um, you know, the codons for DNA. Um, if you don't, it doesn't really matter. Um, but basically, the, the triplets that make up the, the DNA, sort of the code that the DNA is written in, it always ends with, um what is it u a g um i can't even think of the ends now it's been a long time since i had to take genetic genetics but they all sort of sound like like caveman screams and i was kind of thinking about those so anyway um yes you're not gonna be you're not gonna get a mate if you have a huge gash on your leg if there's someone who's perfectly healthy And obviously in a society complex enough that we can understand these feelings, um, it is, it looks like a sign of weakness. And we don't want to be weak. We don't want to be perceived as weak. Um, We don't want to... Yeah, we have these (laughs) evolutionary instincts deeply ingrained in us. We do not want to be the weakest link because we want to procreate. And if we don't want to procreate, if we want it to be more, sort of, societally apt, we want to get the job or we want to, I don't know, we want people to listen to our podcast. So, um, we try and seem whole and we perceive pain and negative emotions as a sign of weakness but we've also changed far enough that we we want to um that we can reflect more about these things and that we want people to be able to um, recognize these emotions we want people to talk about these emotions we want people to be sensitive and to think about them we want to be inclusive when we write a scientific text we have to think about how to not make it offensive and that's what we should do in all of our lives we try to chime in and then we try to understand other people's emotions which makes it so much more complex because if my goal isn't just I want to procreate I don't care if they want to procreate and then I want to feed myself and then oh well if they're pregnant I might as well feed them until they bear my baby and then oh they can raise it until the baby is strong enough to live on its own. And then, well, I've done my job, but unfortunately that's not really how our world works. Or maybe not unfortunately, maybe very luckily, but we have talks of consent and then we have (laughs) people who dedicate their whole lives to studying altruism and finding out why we do good things for other people when we seemingly have no benefit. And in order to do this, we need to be able to, at least to some degree, understand what other people might be feeling, and we need to look at what's just happened to them. And then we need to, um, yes, we need to think, right, how could they be feeling? And then because that's how our brains work and we are still very egocentrical beings, we think, right, how would I feel in this situation? And then sort of briefly make it about yourself, and then, hmm, okay, so I can see, Hmm, I can see the signs. She's crying. Ah yes, She. I need to gather more information. Ah yes, she just told me her boyfriend broke up with her. Hmm, how would I feel if my boyfriend broke up with me? Huh, well it doesn't really matter because my boyfriend is still with me which means I'm winning at life. Anyway, I did better at the exam than her. Ha! is what some people might secretly think, but again, you would never say that, even if that's what you're thinking. You would go up and you would say, oh, I'm so sorry, I never liked him anyway. You're much better, you don't deserve- he doesn't deserve you anyway. And uh, again, obviously this is a caricature and this is me being slightly sarcastic, but that is how (laughs) many human interactions happen. And in order to actually be able to think what, or to understand what the other person could be thinking, it's just a lot easier if we um, if we become more in touch with our emotions. And again, there's lots of science behind when can babies or when can young children start to understand that different people perceive the world differently than they do and there's lots of science behind this um, which is all very very interesting Um, and there's lots of sort of psychological (laughs) things that that we can do to actually discover ourselves more and to change all of these things, but just on a very practical level, I think a really important start is to just identify feelings and then you can deal with them further, but we tend to push everything down if we if something is uncomfortable, we like to push it down because it's better if the world feels all right and obviously um, it is better if the world feels all right, and I'm not saying. That you should dwell on all of the negative things and on all of the bad things all of the time. That is not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it doesn't help if we push them down and never acknowledge them. Because then they'll surface when we (laughs) least expect it and when they're least welcome. And, um... I feel like often, if we become a bit more in touch with ourselves as people, it can help in situations of crisis, and if we don't go to therapy for the first time when we are on the verge of ending it all, but have actually just thought about ourselves before, it can make the process so much more easy. <laughs> I mean it's never easy but it can make it easier and it can help you understand who you are and what makes your world go round and what the meaning is of of your behaviours. And I said before I gave you your example. I gave you the example of, you know, um, she broke up with her boyfriend and I immediately feel slightly superior. Um, but why? Why do I feel superior? Why is Schadenfreude, so the actual, um, the feeling of of happiness when something bad happens to someone else, um, why does this exist? I mean, we can talk about this on a, on a psychological level, on an anthropological level, a philosophical level, um, and there are, you know, we can think about this for many reasons, but what you can do is you can think about it for yourself. Why am I feeling schadenfreude now? Why am I happy that she's in pain, that she's broken up with her boyfriend? And then if you dig a bit deeper, you might discover (laughs) some things about yourself. And I'm not sure if I've made any sense because I feel like I was slightly all over the place in this episode, um, But yeah, so I think it's important to realise that pain can be serving a function. Again, I said before I'm going to talk a bit more about the psychological pain, and it's dreadful. When someone dies, when someone who we love leaves us, it can be horrible, and it can feel like the world is ending. And this maybe does sound a bit cliche and a bit like the motivational quotes, and it doesn't make us feel any better um, about the situation, but at least if we if we do feel devastated, it shows that we truly felt something for this person and that they had an impact on our life and on our life, and that their absence also has an impact on on our lives. Um, I can talk from my, my personal experience here. I love cats. I've always wanted cats. Um, I also love love and I always wanted a relationship and I was the person that said, no, I can't adopt cats because one day they'll die and then I'm going to be devastated and also I can't be in a relationship because I love love too much and I really want a nice relationship but then one, die- one day either my partner will die or I will um be broken up with and then the world will end and i sort of lived in a state of avoidance for a very long time and i avoided anything that could potentially hurt me because i was so scared of this hurt but if we let hurt dominate our lives if we live in constant fear and in a constant state of avoidance we also won't experience the other emotions, the ones that make us happy, the ones that make things incredibly good. And in order to be less afraid of these emotions, I think we need to normalise them. And I'm not saying normalise depression, don't normalise having a mental illness, but normalise talking about your feelings and acknowledging that these feelings exist and not seeing it as sort of something inherently bad that you are able to feel. I mean, there's a reason why in films, for example, villains are often portrayed as having no emotions at all. Yes, well, thank you for listening to a surprisingly long episode. I thought I would be talking for about five minutes, but I've managed to go on and on and on and on. Well done me. <laughs> thank you. And now, as this episode reaches the end, I would like to share something with you that makes me Incredibly happy. Who wants a sausage?